Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlingbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sheila Shoiga and welcome to Ready to be Real Conversations, the podcast series right chat to people of all walks of life. Some names you'll recognise, others you might not. But my hope is that these conversations will at times inspire, challenge, educate, comfort or simply entertain you. Being healthy and well is at the forefront of our minds, especially during this COVID era. So I'm delighted to say that for this season, I've teamed up with an Irish company that I really believe in. Taking Revive Active is one of the ways you can support your immune system this winter. The award-winning super supplement contains 26 active ingredients, including vitamin C, D and zinc, all in one handy daily sachet. And to celebrate our partnership, they're offering a 10% discount on all Revive Active products. Simply go to their website, you'll find a link in the show notes, and use the code SHEILA10. This episode of the podcast is all about Ikea Hauna. There's certain hints, there's certain things that suggest to us that people believed because this time was a transition time it was the turning from summer into winter that very often you'll see in cultures around the world transitional points um what anthropologists and folklorists and people like that call them uh, liminal times this idea of you know being between one state and another that these are very important times for transition for change for enacting magic or for changing states all of this kind of thing and there's lots of evidence to suggest that this was conceived of in that in that way um and that the other world and this world whatever this nebulous idea that the the early medieval period presents us with of the other world is it the world of the dead or the world of spirits or the world of the ancient gods um it's always ambiguous in the way that it's presented dr billy mclinn is a folklorist a lecturer and a musician and he lives in dingle with his wife mudden and their daughters sive and leisha in this conversation, he talks to me about the significance of Halloween, the stories of old and their meaning, and the games associated with this mystical time of year as well. And I started our chat by asking him about its origins. 
Well, like so much of our ancient past, it's very difficult to determine with any accuracy what the precise origins of these things are. But there are plenty of hints along the way which suggest to us that the origins of Halloween are in Irish. You know, when you're talking about Irish tradition, it's always more insightful when you speak about them in the Irish language. So Iha the night before the Festival of Samhain. So what is this Festival of Samhain that is being made reference to here? Um, it seems that it was the turning point from the light half of the year to the dark half of the year. So for a pastoral people, for an agricultural people, this would have been a very key, um, important moment in their year when the grass stops growing, the cattle are all taken down from the high fields and kept around the farm and um, the harvest is finished. So I suppose there's a practical and there's an agriculture and there's an economic aspect to this time of year, which would have been very important to our ancestors. And I think along with that, there was um, a religious or a ceremonial importance to this time of year. There's evidence to suggest that this was a, a very major festival and that um, a lot of the supernatural associations, which are absolutely manifold all the way through yeah. um, even modern concepts of Halloween, that these have their origins in ancient beliefs and customs. Now, like I said, it's very hard to get exactly at what they are because mm. the pre-Christian Irish didn't write anything down. So everything that we have to determine about the ancient festival of Samhain, we're looking at it through the lens of Christianity, um, who were recording some things for the sake of history and posterity. In other cases, they were taking old ideas um, and they were... Reshaping them? Uh, reshaping them. Yeah, you see that quite a bit in Irish mythology, is that mm. they're taking old ideas and they're, they're refitting them to the, the time and the purpose in which the stories were being written down and, and they were told. And in other examples as well, we see that people are very clearly filling in the gaps um, with imaginative ideas and sort of imagining what the ancient pagan past might have been like in their Christian medieval context. But nevertheless, there's certain hints, there's certain things that suggest to us that people believed because this time was a transition time, it was the turning from summer into winter, that very often you'll see in cultures around the world transitional points um, what anthropologists and folklorists and people like that call them uh, liminal times, this idea of, a, you know, being between one state and another, that these are very important times for transition, for change, for enacting magic or for changing states, all of this kind of thing. And there's lots of evidence to suggest that this was conceived of in that in that way um, and that the other world and this world, whatever this nebulous idea that the, the early medieval period presents us with of the other world, is it the world of the dead or the world of spirits or the world of the ancient gods? Um, it's always ambiguous in the way that it's presented. But that this that world and this world were, were close to each other mm. and that in stories we have these wonderfully imaginative stories of humans going into the other world or other world entities um, to the Danan or spirits or the people of the Shi, these ancient burial mounds, um, making incursions into our realm. So this notion that the two spaces, the two ways of existing, I suppose, the other world and this world, are side by side and the transition points between the two are porous is something that is presented in early medieval stories about Samhain. Because there's so much, you know, magic around us and it is, it is, as you said, that the veil between the two worlds or the two ways of looking at things, it has become, I mean, it's become a 
billion dollar industry worldwide now in terms of its commercialism. You know, when you look at traditions and customs and these ideas, um, they only persist because they're relevant. Things that are not relevant to a given culture get forgotten very quickly. Now, sometimes the relevance can be just this is an old custom and people want to remember things that are old for the sake of history, our culture, our antiquarianism, our identity, whatever it is that motivates people. But what we what we've seen and it's it's very it's glaringly obvious in the last generation or two how Halloween is changing and dramatically changing before our eyes. Um, perhaps the the Halloween of my youth is definitely quite quite different. Um, it must have been different to Halloween of a hundred years ago or a thousand years ago. Mm. Um, but it's a constant theme of you know something in it is relevant for people. So that it, it that um, it means the thing is changing all the time, but. It also means that there is a sort of continuity of certain concepts and certain ideas. Um, the commercialization of Halloween, you might, one might lament it as being, you know, this is not true to tradition. But in a way, the commercialization of Halloween has allowed for a lot of the traditional elements of, of Samhain to persist. Yes. Um, and I know, for example, I'll be playing a lot of the Halloween games with my kids um, and, you know, lighting a bonfire and and all of those kind of things. And if we look at some of the other festivals, which probably have quite an old pedigree in Ireland, I'm thinking about Lunasa, for example, mm. on the 1st of August or thereabouts. Um, in most places in Ireland, that has all but disappeared. So the commercialization, sure, it has this, you know, changing effect on things, but it also allows ideas to persist. It allows things to continually be culturally relevant. And for a lot of people, I suppose, you know, knowing that Halloween is this big commercial monster that it is, um, but it also gives people pause to think, hang on, what is what is the reason for this? And there's more and more of an attempt, I think, in Ireland now to understand and to look back to what some of the earlier and older ideas of what Halloween was and what Samhain was. Um, and people take solace from that. People take an interest in that and people take inspiration for that in their life nowadays. So it's something that's in constant flux. You mentioned your own kids there and what you'll be doing and games and bonfires and all of that. So I really want to get into that. Um, but maybe I'll start with your own upbringing. You grew up in Limerick. I grew up in Connemara. We were messaging each other on WhatsApp. And I was I was sharing some of the games that we played as kids growing up. But what was what was played in your house? In way in way um, in sort of suburban Limerick, there was a lot of the very traditional things managed to survive. Um, we played snap apple, which is, you know, hanging the apple from uh, a doorway on a string. Now, our snap apple was slightly less dangerous than some of the more traditional types of snap apple, which were very often played by adults. Um, the slightly more dangerous version of it is they had a, a crossbar. That, so they would have a, a, a two pieces of sticks um, tied together in an X and they would put apples on two of the prongs and then would put a lit candle on the other two prongs. What? So there was a real chance of getting your face burned. <laughs> <laughs> but we had the the sort of the PG <laughs> version of it, um, and then we would do bobbing for apples, um, um, or coins which would be thrown in a basin, um, and you'd have to fish them out with your face. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and these are you know there's accounts going back in the last couple of centuries of all of these things. So these are completely traditional and, and true to true Irish customs. Um, another one we had a game. We never knew the name of it, but I found out the name of it since. It's called Shave the Friar. Um, and that's where you make a pile of a powdery substance, usually flour, but I know ashes were used before as well. Um, and you put uh, something on the top. We put grapes on the top and you use a knife to take slices off the edge of this pyramid. And whoever knocked the grape, 
they would have to fish it out with their face. Yeah. So. Well, we were messaging. I was saying that that was one that we always played at home as well. Yeah. I had no idea that it was called Shave the Fryer. Yeah, so yeah, well, yeah. I'm kind of, I'm, I don't know if I should ask, well, what's that all about? What does that mean? I think it's because you're using a knife. Um, the rhyme that goes with it is Shave the Fryer, Cut a Little Nyer. So it, it's as if you're cut, shaving oh, someone's right, okay. face and you're taking a slice off it with each, with each turn. So that's why I guess it's called, I'm not sure why it was a fryer as such but maybe it's just because the rhyme works um but other things we did as well trick-or-treating of course um which tends to be viewed as a very americanized thing and i suppose it has become more americanized in the last while but we used to dress up in costumes and go around door to door and collecting sweets um and monkey nuts and apples there was a time when you could get monkey nuts and apples and uh, not be aghast yeah 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 but (laughs) that's no longer i'm afraid um and of course the pranks the you know um the throwing eggs and lighting bangers and bonfires and all of that yeah um people lament this as not being the halloween of their youth but there's the idea of pranks is is very well embedded in halloween customs and in some places in ireland it was known as Ihanamalaysia or Ihanaglas, so mm. the night of mischief or the night of tricks so that's that's quite an old thing to do um and people used to pull cabbages out of fields and um throw them at people's doors to wake them up in the middle of the night or they would block uh, chimneys, climb up into the roof and block somebody's chimney or uh, take gates off their hinges and throw them into the ditch. Um, These are all sort of the old rural traditional kind of pranks, but they tended to pick on marginal people or people who would have been cantankerous, perhaps, Um, you know, cross old men were very often the victim of... um, of these pranks and right, games. Uh, yeah, yeah. There's a certain idea, again, a sort of an anthropological or a folklore idea about um, social order and how social order is maintained. And if you think about how, you know, the, the, the power brokers and the authorities in the society, particularly in relation to children, um, that these were very often the victim of pranks on Halloween night. And I think a certain amount of permission or sort of a blind eye was turned to the pranks that people played it was a way for kids to get their own back against who they perceived as being threats to them or their, you know, their authority figures. Um, and you see that a lot in different cultures where at times of year, these liminal times again, when, when um, there might be a supernatural or, uh, association with them or that there are times of change, that the normal rules don't apply. And there's this notion that people are allowed to break the rules in a controlled way for a fixed period of time. And then everything goes back to normal, like a sort of a, a pressure release valve. Um, and in a way, by allowing people to break the rules, it sort of maintains the rules because on the 1st of November, again, children are expected to behave and to not be throwing eggs. Um, so if you, if you give them a little bit of license, um, it allows you to maintain authority over them again. And I remember in particular, there was one teacher in our neighborhood who was not beloved amongst her students right. in her house. The poor woman um, was always victimized on Halloween. So, oh, Jesus. OK. Yeah. Nothing very malicious. Eggs right. And, bangers and things like that but um yeah but it happened yeah and i don't think she was under any an illusion why it was happening okay okay (laughs) so there was almost like a karmic payback on uh i suppose so um you know i'm just thinking as well while i'm listening to you speak there i'm thinking about the people who might be tuning into this podcast who who don't like this time of year for different reasons you know for some people they just want to bolt the door and pull the curtains and shut the world out because it can be, it it can bring up feelings of 
you know, of, of dread, I suppose, you know, and the not knowing who you're opening the door to and the wildness that exists out there now. And unfortunately, people on the front line between the guards and, uh, you know, the, the fire service know all about it, you know, that it can get a bit out of hand. And this year will be a very different Halloween for all of us because of the restrictions that are in place and uh, the recommendations that kids won't be going out trick-or-treating, which will obviously be very disappointing. But in another way, one of the reasons I wanted to have this chat was to hopefully uh, empower and encourage people to to maybe take a look at the old games that were once played and that you can have a lot of fun within your own four walls and that there are ways of of retaining the, you know, the spirit of Halloween um, and still have, have the crack, that it doesn't have to be, OK, Halloween is over for this year. You can still do stuff as we both did growing up. Um, the bonfires, can we talk about that? The custom of lighting bonfires is probably quite old on Halloween. There's um, there's four quatrains, four line poems about the four different festivals of Ireland. Um, mm. And the one to do with Samhain, it talks about um, a bonfire on a hill. Um, it talks about new ale. It talks about eat, people eating meat and feasting and things like that. So, you know, there's plenty of positive sides to it if if you want to spin it that way. There is plenty of accounts of fairs um, and, you know, festivals happening on the days leading up to Halloween and on the eve of All Hallows itself. Um, so there is an idea, you know, quite pervasive in Ireland about community um, assembling together in this way. In fact, some philologists, when they're studying the origin of the word Samhain, some, there's a sort of folk etymology in Old Irish that says Samhain comes from the word for summer's end. Mm. Not sure it might be related to the word for summer, but um, others say that it comes from an old Indo-European word, which means assembly. So the, the, the idea of people gathering together in great numbers for celebration um, may have its roots in how it got its name. Mm. But definitely the Old Irish texts as well talk about great fairs and assemblies. There was one at Awan Macha, apparently, according to these stories. There was a um, festival of tar- at Tara. Um, so they talk about great numbers of people gathering together in festivity and in celebration for Samhain. Um, if this is authentically pre-Christian tradition or not, again, it's hard to know, but definitely in the medieval period, this is how people envisage Samhain to be. So... Um, Community celebration is definitely a part of it. Um, and a lot of 18th, 19th, 20th century accounts talk about Halloween parties, people getting together in great numbers. And there's a few lovely paintings, actually, from the late 19th century of people in um, in their homes. And they would be gathering. Now, obviously, gathering in big numbers is not possible this year, but um, definitely there was a sense of in the home, by the hearth, you know, lighting a fire, even in your the open fire of, of the house was something that was um, used quite a bit uh, as a focal point for Halloween celebration. Mm. Um, and another thing they did, divination. Maybe you did this when you were young as well. Um, yeah. The idea about telling the future. Yes. They used the fire for that quite a bit, um, where young couples who had just gotten together, they would name two uh, nuts for them. So the, it was a boy and a girl. They would name a hazelnut for each of them. And they would put them down side by side uh, in the in the um, ashes of the fire while they were, they were still hot. And if the couple were to stay together, they would pop and fly, and the, the nuts would explode. But if they were not, if they were doomed to break up, they would um, would just wither and burn inside in the ashes. That could be so, awkward. Yeah. <laughs> well, there was. It's it's funny as well that some of the the kids' games and they would involve kids. 
um, we're pretty full on. Like, you know, we know the the one about the bar in Brack. A lot of us have um, fond memories of eating bar in Brack, uh, this uh, kind of sweet raisin bread that's based yeah. around Halloween. Um, and now you buy them and they have a ring put in them. And whoever gets the slice with the ring in it, that this would um, indicate who was next to get married in the group. But back in the day, there was much more than just a ring in it. They would put a coin in it as well. Coin was, was money. Um, if you got a pea, uh, it would mean that you would never get married. If you got a rag, little piece of cloth, it would mean that you would be poor for the rest of your life. And this rather grim one as well, uh, if you got a piece of a stick, it meant that your spouse was going to hit you oh. when you got <laughs> Yeah, I remember the cloth. Uh, I remember the money. I remember the ring. I don't know mm. if I've heard the pea or, or the stick, thankfully. But yeah, well, there was also they also did um, death divination as well to, de- to determine who the next in the group was going to die. And mm. a, I was re- just reading there a couple of examples of that. Um, so telling the future to see who was going to die next. So is this the know, one with the bulls? That's that's one version. There was another one where they had ivy leaves where everybody in the group would have a clean ivy leaf and they'd place it in water and then they'd get up the next day and whoever had spots on their ivy leaf was going to die. <laughs> so... And and again, these are for kids, so they, they didn't hold back back in the day. Um, <laughs> thankfully, they're not as grim anymore. But yeah, the bowls, that, that tradition of the bowls where you have a, a blindfold on and you, you lay out the bowl where the, you would put clay or salt or earth or nothing in the in the bowls um, or, or saucers and you blindfold it and you'd sort of shuffle them around and you'd lay out your hand and put your hand on a bowl and whatever was in the bowl was a, a prognostication of your future. So that determined what was going to happen to you. If you got the the water in the bowl, it meant that um, you were going to go overseas. Yeah. And if the empty bowl, it meant that you would be poor. And of course, the clay in the bowl meant that you were the next person going to die. Yeah, like so, we, did, we did that as kids, but now when I'm listening to it, it sounds absolutely mental. But as kids, we didn't bat an eyelid. It was just a yeah. game and it was good. Yeah. <laughs> it was a bit of crack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, but like... You know, people do spooky things at Halloween, which on the face of it um, can seem quite serious. I suppose the modern version of that might be people doing a Ouija board where they're, Mm. you know, imagining that they're contacting supernatural forces. And, you know, a lot of people might think of that as quite a negative thing to do. But kids doing it, do it to frighten themselves and to get a bit of a, a hype and a bit of a crack, you know. I'm a person who can't handle any, like I, I would never be able to sit down and watch a horror. I would have nightmares for the rest of my days. So I'm the easiest person to scare. But yet kids are able for these big concepts and they're probably able well, for a lot more. Yeah, I think they they might represent sort of a safe way to explore quite difficult ideas. You mm. know, um, you, if you make a game or you trivialize, trivialize them in a way, it's a way of confronting and, and you know, entertaining these ideas. Um you know, we do that all the time in the arts as well, in literature, in horror, in, you know, ghost stories, supernaturals, particularly Hollywood movies and slashers and things like that. We deliberately frighten ourselves. We deliberately engage with the horrific, with the dangerous um, in a way that is controlled. We can always turn it off if we need to. And we know on some level that this is not real, even though things like it happen quite often. Um, so, you know, the the games, I suppose, and the themes to do with Halloween... It's certainly in recent times, I presume, are just a way of people exploring these these things. But, you know, again, that was something that was done in ancient Ireland as well. We, we see early medieval stories, mythological um, stories to do with 
people encountering supernatural beings. Um, I'm thinking about Achtre Nere, the adventures of Nere, mm. who was he was um, dared by the king and queen of Connacht, Maven Alal, to go out and tie uh, a, a withy or a rope around the ankle of a corpse on Halloween night. And all the bravest warriors in Connacht are afraid to do it because the story says that um, there are demons and supernatural beings roaming the earth. Um, and he eventually does. And he goes on this, the, the, the corpse begins to talk to him and all this kind of stuff. And they go off on an adventure and he sees the future, um, the violent death of all of his companions. And he, he uh, does various different things to prevent that happening in the future. So, or another story, you know, mythological story talks about Fionn McCool um, defending the king of Tara from Alain, Alain the Burner, who was uh, one of these Tuatheidanan figures who would come out of the other world yeah. on Halloween night and he would lull them all into a magic sleep and then burn down the palace of Tara. So the stories definitely speak of this idea that there was danger present in the world at, at Samhain and the stories explored these ideas and how, you know, they have folk heroes preventing uh, these dangers and Fionn McCool, of course, being the, the ultimate um, in early Irish literature um, defender and protector, along with Cúchalán, I suppose, defender and protector of, uh, of the realm. And he uses his magic spear. He pricks himself in the forehead um, to stop himself falling asleep. And then... Um, Alain begins to vomit fire over the palace, but he kills him and retrieves his head and becomes the captain of the Fianna as a result. Yeah. So, you know, ancient stories that explore are certainly medieval stories that explore these difficult concepts, the concepts of threat, supernatural threat, you know, the imminence of the realm of the dead or whatever it was that they were conceiving it of um, as, you know, are done in the same way as these horror films of nowadays. Yes. And I think it's, you know, it's a, it's a good time of year to do that. Um, the storytelling, the traditional storytelling uh, season, I suppose, is oh, yeah. so it wasn't correct to be telling these stories outside of that time. So from Samhain, from the 1st of November to the 1st of May, you, you get this idea of this, this binary uh, in the way that people conceived of time in the Indo-European reckoning of time. So this very old way of looking at time where the, the year was divided into two, the light and the dark, and mm. the dark half being, you know, it's, it's, it's a good time of year to start this. It's, it's the end of the the, the um, harvest. So people were at their richest at this time. There was feasting. There was, you know, the drinking of ale and all of that kind of stuff. It was the best time of year to have a big party because everybody was in the money, so to speak. Um. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. And it kicked off the storytelling season, which was the darker half of the year, the half where perhaps sitting closer to the fire and listening to people telling stories would have been more appropriate than being out, you know, in the fields sure. in summer um, when and, you know, the saving of the harvest, there was a lot of work to be done. So um, definitely the that that's a, an expression that's very, very common in Irish is for mm. and all kinds of storytelling, you know, I suppose for some people as well, you know, who may not have kids or may not be in, if their kids are older and they're not into games. Um, just as a time of year, I think it's quite a, an interesting time of year that, you know, and I, I kind of um, alluded to this, that it's constantly changing the way we look at Halloween and the way we sort of uh, all of these festivals and our own culture um, and sort of finding new ways to do it. And even just thematically, you know, the themes that um, are brought up by this. So the themes of the changing season and entering the dark half of the year and um sort of the closing in and becoming more introspective for, for, for people who, you know, I know you talk quite a bit on your um, podcast about mindfulness and things like that. Um, yeah. You know, just in terms of uh, themes to reflect on, it's a really interesting time of year to, to think about how the, the dying of the light and the dying of the plants. If you, if you go outside and look around, yes. Um, you know, if, if we're allowed on our 5k walks, um, mm. just to, th- there's this idea that, um, you shouldn't eat fruit after Halloween because the puka, the spirit that comes out from the other world, uh, goes around and spits on all the fruit. Yeah. Um, or in some less, um, in some less uh, vulgarized versions, they say that he goes and he he pees on all of the fruit. <laughs> it was a way. It was a way of teaching kids not to eat rotten fruit, basically. But it's also a very clear indication um, about how this time of year, this is the turning point, and this is you know the end of this fruitfulness that we've gone through and the end of this bounty and to sort of take stock and to look at all of the, look at nature and look at ourselves and, and, you know, see what we have and be grateful for it and think about how the next few months are going to go and acknowledge that it's getting darker and acknowledge that, you know, there's advantages to that sitting in by the fire and sort of pulling in. And that that's going to be a really big theme in the next few months is sort of pulling in um, into the household and, and how, we're going to manage this for the next few months, you know. Yes, actually, the whole this whole time we we seem to be in a in a, a constant state of, of Halloween. Then, when you look yeah. at the last few months, I think a lot of people are 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 kind of you know recalibrating what's important. And even when you were talking about Nafian and you know the old stories, you know, mm. I, I wondered, and I suppose it's impossible to say because this is a kind of a, a philosophical question more than anything else, but was you know were these these kind of terrifying stories put in place to sometimes make people kind of reflect on their own situation and maybe be grateful for what they had is that a, is that a kind of a romantic idea well they definitely had different kinds of functions these stories um it's clear that some of them were concocted to frighten people particularly kids and to teach them the correct modes of behavior Mm. Um, so stay away from fairy forts and stay away from dangerous places, particularly on Halloween night. But I think in a way we can see the themes and, you know, after Samhain 
was fairly established in Irish culture, we have the, the Christian festivals of all souls and all saints. Um, yes. And that, I would say, gave it, it, it altered and changed our perspective on what Halloween was. Um, it, it sort of took it in different trajectories, building on the older material. Um, but this notion of, you know, the Christian idea of the, the festival of the dead, um, I think people reflected on mortality. They reflected on their relationships with the dead. They, you know, we see this idea of people believing that the dead could come and visit the living um, and that they would leave the door unbolted. They would leave the fire lit. They would leave food out for the dead. Mm. Um, these are people who were thinking about their dead relatives, not wishing them to be, to, to feel like they're being forgotten or left out. So it was a way of remembering, of commemorating, of giving respect um, to those who have passed on. And, and these are the bigger questions. You know, it's it's a good, metaphorically, it's a very good time of year when you see the dying of vegetation, when you see um, the waning of the earth mm. um, and the harvest is saved, that what's left um, when we're looking at darkness and death. And it's a good time, I think, to reflect on these. And I think those things, these those themes and ideas did not pass people by, um, you know, a thousand years ago or more when they were, when they were compiling these stories. And... Um, and when they were they were writing them, some of them from the news. So um, I think thematically these things persist and they persist because they're part of the, the human condition. Um, they are, you know, everybody dies and everybody has relatives who pass on. And death is a particularly poignant subject at the moment. So yeah. um, these are these are ways in which we think about our relationship. And, and as well, I suppose you can think about the, the natural world, you know, and its rhythms and its movements. I think nowadays we think about nature quite a bit and quite a bit more than perhaps we did 10 or 20 or 30 years ago for yeah. all kinds of uh, important reasons. Um, yeah. You know, we've become so detached from nature. In, in a way, 100 years ago or 200 years ago, um, people didn't have to think about nature as much because they were so engaged true, with yeah. it by the kinds of lives that they lived. But now we can we can cheerfully cut ourselves off from almost all parts of nature so we have to make this conscientious effort and, and we really are as a culture i think slowly slowly starting to turn and look at the natural world um some people more than others obviously um and think about our relationship with that think about how we need to live in a way that's sustainable and uh, you know all of the themes that are going to prove very important in the future and now is as good a time as any to reflect on those themes and those ideas as well i think Absolutely. You mentioned um, you mentioned fires there and it just it brought to mind a, an old custom where, you know, the fire would never go out. Um, I suppose it's not necessarily uh, linked to Halloween per se, but I'd love to get your take on that or the reason that that because I remember that. I remember that that was a big thing where you just you'd always keep the fire going. Yeah. Yeah. They had this practice smoring at the end of the evening when um people would cover the the live embers with ash in such a way that they knew that they would be glowing again the, the following day. Um, on a practical level, it's just an easy way to not have to light the fire. But we see the fire symbolically is a very sort of central and very important part of the household. Um, I've heard that the word for tailach for household is related to the word talach, meaning the hearth or the, the yeah, yeah, the yeah. fireplace. So I'm not I'm not sure if that's true, but it, it definitely they they seem to go together. This idea that the fire is the, at the heart of the household, 
And this idea of keeping the fire lit, you know, it's very, I think it stands to reason that people would seen have seen this as a symbolic uh, way of, you know, seeing this sort of perpetual. The fire works so well symbolically for people. It's It gives light, it gives heat, it gives the source of cooking. Um, it's transformative. So, yes. you know, the symbolism of fire is, is absolutely central. And there were prayers that people recited when they were smooring the fire, when they were sort of covering it over. Um, and a lot of ceremony and ritual at the various different festivals re revolved around the fire. People would look to the flames of the fire for omens or, you know, the day after St. Bridget's Day, for example, they would look for omens in the ash to see if St. Bridget had visited their house, that kind of thing. Yes. Um, and on, on Bealtaine, which is on the other end of the year to Samhain, it's sort of like the, the analogue for Samhain on the other side when we are turning from the dark to the light half. Um, people were very careful with the way they tended their fires so as not to give away the luck of the household. The, the fire was seen as symbolically representing the luck and the prosperity of the household. Mm. So keeping fire perpetually going, I suppose, or, you know, as, as much as, as long as they could, I'm sure had um, strong metaphorical associations and, and magical associations for people um, who, when you think about it, for, you know, rural people in very basic um, houses, you know, stone houses or mud cabins, that the fire was the only source they had of heat and of light. Yes. Um, so, you know, tremendously important and central to their lives. When it comes to Taishi, Puki, you know, um, you know, all of those old stories of that you've already touched on, but, you know, people call them, you know, superstitions. But are they superstitions or, you know, is that unfair to label them as such? Well, superstition, it's a bit of a loaded word nowadays. We, we as folklore scholars, um, I was always taught, um, try to avoid the word superstition and use the word folk belief because it seems far less judgmental. OK, its, I like that. Folk belief. Outlook. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we have a tendency to dismiss things that are factually you know, that contradict what we perceive of as being the facts. Um, and that's fair enough. It's it's important to have a rational outlook on life. But what is also important is to recognize the thought patterns and the beliefs and the ideas that lead people to engage in ideas that we might label as superstitious. So ideas to do with Puki and Taishi and Sloshi Spridna, all of these various different ideas in, in Irish folklore. Um, when you analyse them on a psychological level, you see that they are operating in a very different way to um, what we might perceive them as being. Um, they seem sort of silly on the face of it, but actually they were very often a way for people to explore ideas um, in a metaphorical way or in a conceptual way. Um, ideas and concepts which as a culture we are only gaining the language to talk about in an overt way now I would say in the last 10 or 20 years like a very good example of it would be um, the fairies and I'm loath to use the word fairies in, in English because of how um, poor a job it does at representing what the native Irish concept of the slow she are the people of the yeah. other world or the people of the burial mounds um, but Fairies, this notion of fairy abduction, that the fairies could take somebody away, whether physically or sort of spiritually or metaphorically, I suppose, 
um, or that they would take away children and they would replace them with um, changelings. This was, you know, on the face of it, it seems silly, but in a way where you see fairies operating conceptually, they're operating in the realms that people didn't want to speak about overtly. So somebody could be seen. We even use the expression now, oh, he's away with the fairies, meaning mm. it's somebody who's sort of out of touch with reality or sort of living in an inner world that doesn't match with, you know, what everyone else is thinking. Um, but this was a way for a pre-scientific people to discuss things like mental health problems, to discuss things like um, nervous disorders, depression. I mean, a, a very common one is women after childbirth being um, vulnerable to influence by the fairies and that they could have dramatic personality changes. Of course, we're, we're only looking at this now as postpartum depression yeah. and things like that. Um, infant wow. mortality, suicide, a lot of the darker elements that we were not, we didn't have the vocabulary for, or we, we didn't permit ourselves to have the vocabulary for, were spoken about and very well understood in this metaphorical and in this conceptual way of explain, explaining and exploring um, dark and difficult concepts. So, you know, you can look at fairy belief in this sort of narrow, myopic, scientific sense and say, this is just silliness and has no bearing on reality. But actually, when you explore what's going on in people's minds and culturally and socially, they're doing something very different with these stories. And very often there's a lesson or there's a message within these stories as well, um, which would have been very well understood by the culture that speaks about would spoke would have spoken about them and speaks about them um and because people are divorced i suppose from the reality that those people inhabited and we we talk about things in a different way now the original meaning or the subtext or the context um in which these stories were told uh is not understood and therefore people think of them as being facile or silly or superstitious and they're not they're doing something very different it's like you've stirred something in me saying that that and it's also something to be mindful of for all of us that there's a lot that we don't necessarily understand ourselves but that doesn't mean that they don't have their place or we can't learn from them and I suppose that goes for everything really doesn't it it does yeah I suppose you know when it comes to belief belief is a, is a very interesting thing um it's just we've, we need to be careful not to castigate things that we don't fully understand in yeah. context, I suppose. That's all. And the idea of belief in stories themselves, there's, you know, even people telling stories may have negotiated or, um, you know, played around with the idea of belief. They may have tempered the story at the beginning by saying, you know, I'm not sure if this is true, but or this story was recounted to be to me by an old woman and she definitely believed it. So people can sort of dismiss take themselves. Take No, they can take themselves a one step removed from the story, you know, not explicitly asking the listener mm. to fully commit to belief in the story, but it creates an environment or creates an atmosphere in which the ideas and the concepts can be explored. So, you know, if you suspend disbelief for the duration of the story, the story has a function and it works in its own parameters, you know. So even traditional storytellers themselves don't always commit to the story or commit to the beliefs or the ideas. So it's a negotiation between the teller and the listener. Um, and you'll notice that, you know, storytelling, you know, folk tales, which are sort of stories of long, long ago and witches and dragons work very different to legends. Legends 
have a different function. Legends are stories that are told as if they really happened, whether they're true or not, um, or whether they involve the supernatural or not. They're presented in a realistic way. Mm. Um, and this sense of realism allows people to explore these ideas and to negotiate these ideas in within the parameters of the story itself. So, you know, there's a when you dive deep into it, there's there's a lot of very powerful meaning and subtext in these legends, primarily the legend material. Yeah. Um, and that's that's where I think the really interesting things happen. Earlier on, you spoke about your own kids and the games that you'd be playing. So mm. what kind of stuff are you know, will you be playing this year in your house for Halloween? Well, we'll carve pumpkins for sure. Um, I love doing that. I've carved turnips, the traditional Irish way. I was going to ask you about that because, mm, yeah. Hard as the hobs of hell, though. They're hard. That's the thing, like. Weather. They're, so, they're yeah. rock hard. How do they do it? Um, perseverance, I think. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, they didn't have pumpkins, so they didn't know there was any softer uh, option available. Maybe they parboiled them as well. My cousin used to make turnip ghosts, the, the turnip lanterns, and he'd have it hanging um, on a string by his side. So I remember that. Oh, right. In Limerick. Yeah, but we'll carve pumpkins. We'll play snap apple. We'll probably do the bowls, maybe with a very low mortality rate. <laughs> um, and you how know, old are your girls? Uh, we'll do shave the fur. They're nine and seven. Okay, and they're very excited for Halloween this year. We we normally go up to Limerick um, for Halloween. We can't do that this year, um, so we'll do it at home. And what we've decided as well is. Um, we're going to hide behind the doors, the bedroom doors, and they can knock and go trick-or-treating inside in the house. And ah, brilliant. <laughs> behind each door. <laughs> and uh, probably watch a, 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 a very mildly scary movie, cartoon or something. Like yeah, that, yeah, yeah. With a Halloween theme. Yeah. Um, and the main thing is that they get to stuff their face with sweets. Yes. So, which suits me fine as well. I like sweets too. Yeah. <laughs> um. You know, to cycle back or circle back to what we were talking about for Samhain, you know, because we we don't know a huge amount about what the original pre-Christian manifestation of Samhain was. We don't know necessarily how people worship the gods um, at this time. There's hints, there's plenty of hints. uh, But, Mm. you know, for us nowadays, the ancientness of Samhain, it's it's an important thing to recognise but we need to think about it in our own creative way and use it as a source of inspiration, as a time of reflection, as a, a, a turning point in the year and as an important part of our own culture as well. We're going to finish up the chat. It, it, this is quite different, actually. I've never done this uh, on any podcast before where we're going to close off with a song. But this song is significant and certainly linked to what we've been talking about for the past hour. So, um Tell us about the song. The song is called Pertnabukui. Um, it's from the Blasket Islands. And the song means the, the song of the spirits um, or the song of the, the ghost. The word Pukui in West Kerry Irish has a couple of different meanings, but they're all supernatural. Um, it Supposedly, there's a wonderful story that goes with it. Supposedly, one of the Odalic family who was living in Inishvikilon, one of the Blasket Islands, um, they were out fishing and they heard this music coming in on the air or from the water um, and he was a fiddle player and when he got back he started playing this tune Pertnavuki, um, perhaps believing it to be music coming from the other world from the supernatural realm 
Um, at some point, words got attached to it. I think, again, from the Odalic family from the baskets. And the song talks about a woman who has been abducted by the fairies. She is speaking to her family, the mortals who are left behind. And she says, um, when the cock crows, I have to go away with this otherworld troop and um, not to follow her and not to try and get her back. And she says, I'll be with them as long as there are water in the waves. So yeah. um, it's got a very, it's a, quite a haunting song. And um, the, the instrument that I play as well, it's just the, the only sound in it is me playing this instrument that I have called a yebahar. It's a, a long, awkward contraption of a, an instrument. It's an acoustic instrument, but it, it has a very strange, um, almost electronic kind of sound to it. The original idea okay. came from a Turkish guy called Gorkem Shen. I wrote to him and I asked him, could I could I um, make my own version of one? And he All said right. that I could, so so I did. And then my wife, Murina Kaulif, the West Kerry um, Shano singer, we were we decided we were going to do something together, um, and she picked this, thinking that it would suit the sound and the song, and they, I think it goes very well together. <laughs>
Perth Nabuki there from Billy and his wife Mudden. And for more on Billy, go to his website tradition.ie. This episode of Ready to Be Real Conversations was brought to you in partnership with Revive Active, your daily super supplement made here in Ireland. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.